and as somebody as somebody who came to Springsteen quite late in my life, like Springsteen was my dad's music growing up. Um, and one of the things that was such a joy is once you realize, oh no, my dad was onto something. It's not just that just because my dad likes it doesn't mean it's uncool. Right. Is that there is such like you know, there are some of these 80s seminal artists, and you go, oh, they're cool now, but actually. In amongst their catalogue, there is one bit of work that is really good. And then there's a maybe three or four bits of filler. Or sometimes they don't even have that. Maybe they've only got two and only one of them's any good, right? But the thing that is really fun discovering Springsteen later in life is that there is so much to unpack. And it's it's all good, you know. It, it wasn't it wasn't a case of putting out records to fill deadlines. He clearly yeah. is a storyteller who, I, I guess, in a, in a way that as a comedian I relate to very much, is like what drives the urge to create is that you want to tell a story about the time that you're in and the time is always changing and so that story is always different. Hello, everyone, and welcome to a new episode of Set Lusting Bruce, your podcast all about Bruce Springsteen, his music, and mostly his fans. I am your host, Jesse Jackson. Today, we are getting off the Springsteen train, though he will come up, as he normally does, uh, because I have a timey-wimey episode. It's my morning. It's Anthony's afternoon, and we're going to be talking a little Blink-182 and Rage Against the Machine. Anthony, welcome to the show. Hey, Jesse. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. So tell, tell my audience a little about yourself. Um, so I'm born in Melbourne. I moved to London about four or five years ago. I'm a stand-up comedian uh, by like my, my main sort of goal, ambition, pursuit. And obviously, um, the last year has made moving halfway across the world to be on live stages in very packed rooms, a very bad idea. I was going to ask how that was going for you because um, I, over this past year, I've had several musicians join me and they'll talk about, you know, how do you promote a new album when you can't do a gig in front of people, you know, and have the little CD afterwards to sell. So I imagine the same thing. It's uh, like, how do you do live? comedy yeah so i i have to be honest i there are zoom gigs and there are virtual gigs but if you've ever been in like a zoom meeting you will know that part of because workplaces around the world are trying to do fun zoom things and they, they expect you to do it in your time and you go as nice as all of this is as fun as all of this is i've sat in front of a computer all day the last thing i want to do is be having my entertainment and my fun in the exact same environment that my, my work is happening in right now. So I, I didn't do Zoom gigs. And so it has been challenging because as you were talking about dropping albums and promoting albums, I've been doing comedy for 10 years. In October, November of 2019, I recorded my special that is sort of up until now the best 
bit of right. work I got with, with, with an idea of I'll release that as an album in early 2020 and then I'll never perform that material again and I'll be forced to get out there, promote the, the album to get people to discover it and write my new material. As it turns out, I have not performed that material again. <laughs> but by completely different circumstances. Yeah, I, I, that's, I, I can only imagine. And the... And, and I do think it's kind of interesting as a comedian, what is the, um, you know, it's that old joke, as much as I love the new stuff, I love when he does the classic bits. And so there is that little bit of people want to hear new jokes and new stories, but they also love going back, you know, when you bring a friend going, oh, wait, wait, this is great. Listen, you know. <laughs> yeah, I think. It's, it, I can't remember who it was, but there was a really good comedian who said if people are paying, because I, I think particularly at the high end of ticket prices, if you're an arena comic and you're yeah. charging a bit, um, that people will want to hear the old jokes once, but then once they do, you kind of train them that they don't need to see you again because right. they're, they're not getting anything new. And so yeah. um, as much as possible so a completely different comedy culture in Australia where it's kind of not as big a uh, population so you have to do the festival shows is yes. more than the clubs to, to, to make money and so um, yeah I, I in the habit of trying to 75% new material every time I do a festival show because yeah. at least that way people go I need to need to come back to see it's, it's going to be different well and I think that the to for our first and not last connection to Springsteen, right? One of the reasons why the Springsteen fandom want to see him perform live so much is it isn't the same show every time. I mean, you know, he, he, you know, up to sometimes up to 50, 60% of his set are different songs every night. And so yeah. while everyone loves Born to Run and we all go crazy when he does Born to Run, you know, yeah. uh, it's the idea that you get something that you haven't heard before or you haven't heard very often. So, um, yeah. yeah. And as somebody, as somebody who came to Springsteen quite late in my life, like Springsteen was my dad's music for sure, me absolutely. when I was growing up. Um, and one of the things that was such a joy is once you realize, Oh no, my dad was onto something. It's not just that just because my dad likes it doesn't mean it's uncool. Right. Is that, there is such, like, you know, there are some of these 80s seminal artists and you go, oh, they're cool now. But actually, in amongst their catalogue, there is one bit of work that is really good. And then there's a maybe three or four bits of filler. Or sometimes they don't even have that. Maybe they've only got two and only one of them's any good, right? But this thing that is really fun discovering Springsteen later in life is that there is so much to unpack and it's it's all good, you know. It, it wasn't it wasn't a case of putting out records to fill deadlines. He clearly yeah. is a storyteller who, I, I guess, in a, in a way that, as a comedian, I relate to very much is like what drives the urge to create is that you want to tell a story about the time that you're in, and the time is always changing, and so that story is always different. Yeah, I, I totally agree. In fact, that's one of the idea that he's continuing to be creative and to share is pretty amazing. 
Um, and I do think of the, um, you know, the old quote, I think it was um, Samuel Clemens or Mark Twain, right, that said, you know, I, um, I, left I left home at 18, came back at 22, and I was surprised how much my father had learned in those, in those four years, <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah. And yeah. so it, it is kind of interesting. So let's go right into that, Anthony. Growing up, what kind of music, I, I take it Bruce Springsteen was played in the house. What else did your parents play a lot for you when you were a kid? So my parents had very different tastes and all good and and mostly stuff that I have grown to love as an adult. So my, my mum loved Prince and um, UB40 and some of the reggae, Bob Marley, some of that stuff. And my dad was definitely a big rock guy. So he liked um, Springsteen. He liked Queen. He liked, um, I guess, the, the one kind of crossover artist that both my parents had and that has been... The one I took to quickest as a result, I guess, was, was Stevie Wonder. I was super lucky to get to see him live a few years ago. It was a bucket list item for me. So oh, I um, can imagine. Yeah. So, so that, I was lucky enough to have parents with pretty good taste in music. And when I grew out of being too cool for that, it's been a really, really fun thing to kind of rediscover and connect and, and, and realize that your, your parents are pretty cool, you know? Yeah, that is. So, um, what era did you go to high school or, you know, secondary school? And what was your, what were you enjoying when you were in your rebellious teen years? <laughs> so I, I was, uh, I started high school in the year 2000. So I was class of 2000, um, 34 now. Um, yeah. And so for me, the, the two that really like influenced my life the most and in completely different ways, and one I'm prouder of than the other. So Blink-182 were the first band I saw live. Sure. And um, I would say potentially the, the, the closest thing I saw to stand-up comedy live first, because I was like 13 and you had these people who, and looking back, by the way, it is ridiculous because they were fully grown adults making jokes that were written for teenagers. It is absolute nonsense. Like, you Hold on just a minute. That's my wife calling. I'm going to pause just a minute. <laughs> Okay. Hey, LJ. Not much. I'm on a podcast. Um, she was camping all weekend, and she's let me know she's on her way home. So, oh, yes. dude, that's awesome. Yeah. That's super sweet, dude. All right, so you're you're going to this Blink 182. Here's adults, and you're 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 saying this is your first thought of uh, you know stand up comedian. Yeah, it was. It's it's crazy as an adult to realize how much the irreverent and like just the 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 ability that these guys got paid to make the sort of jokes that me and my friends were making at the time yeah. um was like oh i didn't realize you could just that was a thing you could do you know because in high school they're always telling you like obviously if you are goofing off your teachers want to discipline that behavior out of you yes and then to see that behavior being celebrated like oh you know maybe there is a way that I can not be like my teachers, you know? Um, so that was, it was much more than the music. It was their interactions on stage and their, and a lot of it now you look, I look back and as somebody who tries to tell jokes for a living, it's like, oh man, I should have a better entry into comedy than this absolute fluff. But were you, were you the typical class clown? 
I don't think typical. I, I would say, the, actually, may, maybe. Like, the one thing that is true of, of me as a high school student is that I was definitely, I, I come from a poor area and not a great school. I, I was academically, like, I found the basics of, of school quite easy. And yeah. so I was understimulated. And, and that tended to mean yeah. that I'd goof off to make entertainment for myself. But I don't think I was a class clown in, in the way that, you know, you, you get this depiction of somebody who hated school. And uh, yeah. I was just like, I was just a bored kid. Yeah. And just trying to amuse yourself and amuse your classrooms. And um, I said a long time ago, um, there, there was something going around that um, I, I can't remember what it was, but they talked about what are, what are five things you know that are true? And, mm-hmm. you know, like, and one of the things I said was um, you, you can't enjoy a movie, a, a movie in the theater without fresh popcorn, right? Like that's something I know that is a fact. And the other thing is there is almost no better feeling in the world than making someone else laugh. Yeah. It's one of yeah. It. And, and I think that is, you, you know, you you get that first hit and all of a sudden you're like, wait, wait a minute, this was cool. Yeah, and it's really weird looking back on it now as an adult, right, with friends who are teachers and family with children and you go, oh, you know, some some of what you did was not great, that, that's, but also that, that it's systemic, right? It's the schools are stretched, the teachers are stretched. And, yes. and and because of that, people get left behind and they make their own fun. And I am a case of that, right? Yeah. And it was definitely something that would have distracted some kids who didn't find school as easy as me. <laughs> um, so when you, when you started thinking about you wanted to do this for a living, to, to tell jokes, um, I think a lot of people are are work funny, right? Like I will say something funny at work and everyone will laugh and oh Jesse, you're so funny. And then I, I have enough I have enough sense that I know that if I'm standing in front of a group of employees or even at a seminar back when they used to do, you know, business meetings, yeah. you know, I can be funny because I'm in that situation where I'm giving a presentation on call center software, they're not expecting someone to be necessarily be funny. So I can make it really entertaining. That is a different muscle than going to a festival or a comedy club where people have paid anywhere yeah. from, you know, a few pounds to, you know, 20 pounds, have drinks, they've taken their significant other out and they go, okay, MF be funny yeah it is a totally different dynamic isn't it yeah a hundred percent and you know as somebody who's done this a long time now it is one of the the moments of schadenfreude and it's super endearing but also just super funny to watch somebody who is definitely the funny person in their friendship group doing their first gig because there is a bravado and a sense of um there is a sense of just completely not knowing what you've gotten into it's like seeing somebody poking a dog with a stick and then the dog jumps the fence you know where you yeah. go ah you're gonna get what you deserve now yeah they, they come on stage like they're bulletproof 
and then they go, here's my joke. And everyone goes, oh, we're supposed to laugh. And you can see them go, the moment where they go, oh, it's not as easy as they make it look. Yes. And there is a, a moment of schadenfreude that I think most comedians get seeing that. It, it, it is, as you said, it's a completely different muscle because so much of humour is, as you mentioned, in the surprise. It's in the, oh, I didn't expect that to happen. Boom, that's funny. And in a comedy club, you kind of have to play with the suspension of disbelief that the, the audience need to feel like the jokes were a surprise, but they know you're trying to... Yeah, it's it's like a street musician magician where they know you're trying to trick them. Your job is to trick them anyway. Yeah, and and one of my favorite. I, I'm a big Penn and Teller fan, and I and I and one of the people that is on his podcast is Matt Donnelly has done a lot of you know improv, and he talks a lot about it. And he has just started trying to do magic himself and they say a lot of the skills that he used in improv and in comedy help him in magic because he's comfortable with talking and sharing things um i I also think it's it's got to be interesting because you're if you're a music if you're a musician you come out on stage you start with a song you know, it may be a song everyone knows. It may be a song no one knows, but you, you're going to get their attention. Um, one of my go-to jokes, and uh, as everyone knows, my name's Jesse Jackson, and I'm very white. And I always say, I look different than I do. You know, like, hi, I'm Jesse Jackson. I look different than I do on TV. And that yeah. usually gets me a joke, right? That that breaks yeah. the ice. Um, yeah. But you know, if I'm in, in front of the improv that, you know, they're like, okay, so what fat boy, what, you know, keep talking, what's going on? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It is, it is funny. It is funny the way that, and, and to be fair, th- there's so many different performance elements and nobody in the audience is thinking about this consciously. It all just happens. It's magic happening in the back of the brain. But like one of, one of the things that I like to do just to make it fun for me because you're telling the same jokes night on night on night, is try and find something in the room, whether it be something the MC says before it, or just something visually in the room, and start there because then it grounds the audience in. in it is a bit more surprising because the audience go, "Oh, this was just for tonight." Yeah, and part of the trick of that is then the audience are like, "What else actually was just for tonight?" And they. Yeah they're a bit kinder to you and then you mentioned the thing of like with a musician if you want you can get up you can play a song you can say hey i'm blah you play a song and then they listen and you stop and they applaud and then if if you're a nobody if you're not the name on the ticket you're a support yeah. actor or whatever that in the background will i pay attention or not is such a important and beautiful gift because as a comedian like if you go on to a room that wasn't expecting you to be on, that there's no ability for comedy to exist in the background. Like either people are paying attention or they're not. Yeah. And by the time, and and also if, even if an audience doesn't like a song, they know that when it's silence, oh, that's the end of the song, and as a good audience, we applaud, right? Right. That's <laughs> yeah. We're trained how to do that. Yeah. But with but the- good, yeah, if if they don't like the joke, by the time they realise, oh, that's where I was supposed to laugh. They can't laugh and make it up. Right, yeah. <laughs> I guess I could go, okay, that was it. Um, oh. 
the um so uh i i, I know we're kind of off music but i'm just, i'm fascinated yeah. by this journey of yours um you know what why did you decide to make the plunge where you went from okay i think i what have you did you always want to do this or was there a light bulbs you know a light switch that said okay you know what i'm gonna dump into the deep end and i've got five minutes which yeah. seems an internally on stage right uh, it, it really is so much longer than you can imagine i'll give you the condensed version and, and it does also include uh, a link back to music because it kind of all happened in those formative teenage years so essentially see blink 182 they're being funny on stage oh that's something you can do started looking into comedy, like going to live gigs around town. Um, and then my second artist who was hugely influential to me at the time, I was also listening to a lot of, which is Rage Against the Machine. And so there were two things happening in my head at once that I hadn't ever considered before. And one was that you can, you can use a performative space to be political. You could let, it, it, it felt to me at 13, 14, if I wanted to talk to people about politics, and particularly people my age, they're a bit like, uh -huh. but if you shared them a Rage Against the Machine song and it was like, hey, what about the lyrics on that? Yes. Then that engage with you, right? It was like tricking people to care about and have the conversations you wanted to. Then there was this comedy thing happening that I was discovering. And then in between that, there was a comedian I found who was doing both of those things. He was a guy back home, Will Anderson, fantastic comedian, um, and who does great, just hilarious hours of comedy, brilliant storytelling, but then you get to the end and you tell the people you were there with, you're like, hey, that thing that he said, and you, you could start having these conversations. And so that, that was it for me. It was like, it was like, oh, this is something that combines these two things that I'm super interested in, but let's find out. So then I was going to a bunch of gigs and just loving comedy, but not sure whether I had the chops or whatever. And then eventually, like most people will tell you, they saw somebody so good that they were like, okay, I have to get on stage and do what he's doing. Mine's the exact opposite. I was investigating comedy. I was seeing a lot of comedy. And then I saw somebody so bad that I was like, well, if he gets to do that, then I can do whatever the hell I want <laughs> because I'm not going to be worse than that guy. Oh, that's hilarious. And so what do you, what's the hardest part of doing it? And not, I'm mean, let's obviously we're talking about pre-COVID. What's the hardest part of trying to do this for a living? I would say the, the truth of the matter is, is that I don't think people understand just how many great comedians are there. And, and so the difference between the people who get discovered and have their big break and not is partly luck. There's a million people just as funny as the people on TV that just didn't get as lucky. And what those people in that bracket below have to do to make a living is hustle hard. You've got to tour, you've got to constantly be booking gigs and yeah. it, it's, it's, it's kind of relentless. And so I think that, that like just, cause you're working nights, you're probably um, on the road a lot. Like it, it's, it's not a natural way to live. And, yeah. and so that's always been one of the reasons that I've kind of kept one foot in, one foot out. Like I'll tour, I'll do my festival shows, 
but I, I've always kept a second stream of income because there's always part of me that goes, what I don't want to be is somebody who wakes up 50 on the road, no real stable roots yeah. because I've been touring the whole time. And I think that that sacrifice and that hustle is, is I guess, the same as musicians who don't yeah. make it, right? It, it's a big I'll, one. I'll, I'll try to look up um, and I'll send you this link. Um, a a writer in Hollywood, a guy named Mark Evanier, um, yeah. wrote a wonderful column about, um, and he told, he did not use names, but he told the story that, you know, one, two really good comedians and one ended up just by luck getting a guest star on a TV show and it snapped and then he ended up getting a tv show and then yeah. it was it was fairly successful and he went on to another another level and the other comedian just as funny just as talented never had that spark and yeah. just remained at this other level and he said though and the point of the he says he calls it the speech and he his creative friends come to him and say, okay, give me the speech. And the, and the speech basically is, it's not fair. Understand the entertainment business is not fair. You yeah. know, um, you know, Southside Johnny and Bruce Springsteen, you know, both starting the same, you know, and now um, I'm biased that, you know, Bruce has a little more talent and spark, but Southside Johnny is an amazing performer. And yeah. it just, you, you, it is just, you've got to have a little bit of luck and a little bit of magic. And it just, um, and that's, um, it's the hope that kills you. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> 100%. And, and as you said, it, it is, it is, um, I think you made a really good point there in that even if we, we, we go, yes, Bruce, slightly more charismatic, slightly more talented, equally hardworking. Like you take nothing away from him, but what you go, what you then go is, is he proportionate to his fan base, his success, his money? Is he that much better? And the answer is almost, if you look at people at the top of the entertainment industry and somebody at 10, are they that much better versus right. where they got? Absolutely never. Like it's never that right. way. It, it all hoovers up to whoever's at the top but um yeah. that's just the way it is uh, but so yeah that that is i guess the hardest thing about it so i i, I wanted we talked before we hit record you wanted to talk a little bit i'm going to switch gears um yeah. obviously rage against the machine um we're very familiar because of tom morella yeah. uh you know he he's told the story multiple times that you know they had started covering the ghost of tom Joad, and then bruce asked him on stage how to do it and they you know and i i can't remember what key right but like you know they're debating on what key and bruce says okay we're gonna do it in this key and it's gonna be great and you know he's like okay that's why he's the boss and then you know for a little bit over a year he filled in for little steven and was a guitarist on the e street band and i i was not a rage against the machine fan i i you know i vaguely knew him but i saw so much joy in his face like i can't believe i'm here i can't believe i'm effing playing the guitar with the e street band and yeah, had yeah. so much fun and and i become a fan of his because of how strong he's been 
not only how much he loves music and, and talked about loving Kiss and all this other bands, but his his political views um, are interesting. So you wanted to mention, you said a little bit that you find it amusing sometimes about fandom and that. So talk to me a little bit about that, Anthony. Yeah, so I, I think that is one of the, the reasons I loved the idea of talking about Rage Against the Machine on this podcast is because I think Bruce and Rage Against the Machine inherently have this thing where their music is unapologetically their political opinion. It, it seeps through everything they can do. You'd have to be deliberately not looking for it to not see that it's there, right? Um, speaking on Rage in particular, because they're the ones I, I've, I've spent more time in, like, but lyrically, there is nothing ambiguous about some of those who work forces are the same who burn crosses, right? That yes. is lyrically unambiguous. And then you have these people in the comment section going to Tom Morello on Instagram. Man, I used to love your music as a kid, but now you're all political. What are you doing? You're an idiot. Leave politics out of it. It's like, Dude, politics was never not in this, right? right? Like, have you ever listened to his music? Uh, you know, and then, yeah, Bruce no. has the same thing, right? It's, it's right. the same thing. He's even since recently when he started doing the podcast with Obama and all these people got on. Oh, why are you working with that guy? He was never not going to be an Obama fan. Have you ever listened to anything that he did? Right. I mean, uh, when 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 president Trump was in the hospital with COVID, right. They had his fans, you know, supporters outside playing born in the USA and people like, have they ever listened to the song? Like, do they not? And um, I had a lady on a few months ago, Heather, who is a huge Leonard Cohen fan. And she talked about it and she said, you know, what's funny, Leonard Cohen and Bruce Springsteen's most famous songs are their most misunderstood song because hallelujah is not this religious joyous celebration of god and part of you say isn't this and i had a lady on yesterday that i didn't want to correct um you know she says oh bruce springsteen it just means america i mean his songs are all about like born in the usa and i just wanted to go yes his songs are about america but it's the different between the america dream and the american reality and it always has been yeah, and I think, again, I, I'm going to say something, and correct me if I'm wrong on this, but, but from my listening to Bruce, one of the things that I think is true is I don't think it's wrong to say that he's proudly patriotic, like he loves his country, but he loves his country enough to be honest about how it can be better. And there is a yes. difference between being patriotic and hoping for the best and then being the kind of patriot who holds your country back by saying that there's nothing we can improve. Yeah. And, you know, and, and hey, I'm like everyone else, you know, uh, leave, you know, proud to be an American and all that stuff. But that also doesn't mean, you know, I'm a 61 year old white guy. Mm-hmm. I have, a, especially this past year with the Black Lives Matter and all the, the here in the US, the, the white supremacist that's come up, the the anti-gay, um, anti you know woman, and it just all this stuff. I realize, you know, I can only see from my view, and I think the first thing I have to realize is I can't view what other people are experiencing, and so I have to acknowledge that, and I have to acknowledge that my American dream 
is different than someone else's and you know bruce said a long time ago if we don't all win if 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 we all if we don't all win none of us win and people go like oh that's communism no what he's saying is everyone needs a fair shot everyone needs the help and we got to be there for each other yeah i think i think that's exactly right and i think to to kind of contradict myself a tiny bit that's okay the, in, the interesting thing about um that and about i guess again not not wanting to compare my comedy to Bruce Springsteen no, at no, all. No, no, no. Although, although, although to, just to pull the thread is that um, I, I was talking about have you like how do these people not see the politics there? And the part of that is that the best way to communicate about your political ideals because you are, as you said, you only see them through your eyes. The best way to communicate them is to tell your story from a personal place and hope that the political messages that you want to get out there are told demonstratively, like show, don't tell sort of thing. Because if I got on stage and I was like, this is what I think about this, this is what I think about this, this is what I think about this, A, I'd sound like a politician, B, people hate politicians. So I wouldn't get very far as a comedian. So instead I tell my stories, I put the jokes in, and then I hope people get the message out of that. And I guess, in doing that, there are probably people who would go away to my go away from my shows and think, oh my God, what a funny guy. Thank God he didn't put any of those politics in there. And then they hear me on this podcast and they go, oh no, tricked again. No, but you know, Anthony, it's it's um you know, in, in satire and political satire is is it's a narrow band. You've got to be funny, you've got to be universal. But, um, you know, I tweeted just recently, and it's not an original thought. I said, okay, I just want to make sure I understand this. It's wrong that the, the right totally support a bakery telling a gay couple, no, we won't bake a cake for you. And they go, that is, the, that is, that is free enterprise. Everything is great. We applaud that totally. You stupid liberals forcing people to do things, you're wrong. Major League Baseball says, hey, we don't like these new voter laws in Georgia, so therefore we're moving our, you know, all-star game. (gasps) What? No, you need to stay out of politics. You need to do, you know, it, 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 it's what I would guess, and I'm not going to put words in your mouth, and I want you to expand on this. Hypocrisy is a fertile ground for comedy. I, I yeah. right. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Because I, I think that is that is a beautifully observed thing because you are exactly right. One of the because we all go through our days and we accept a level of, of these double standards because we don't have time to unpick them, right? And one of the beautiful things as a comedian that you get to do is go, it's like a funhouse mirror at a uh, yes. at a fair, right? You go, this is what you look like, but also I'm going to blow up these particular bits and, and really show you them in high definition. And so you're talking about the the uh, the bakery stuff. I I I have started toying around with some of those ideas myself because the big thing here at the moment is the idea of these these vaccine passports, which have got the same people who say a bakery should be allowed to say no yeah. to whoever they want, saying, well, no, no business should be able to say no if I'm not vaccinated. It's like, well, where is the difference? My favourite one of those I saw was a guy who tweeted, um, 
who tweeted something like, if pubs have vaccine passports, I don't care if I have to drive 5,000 miles. I'll drive 5,000 miles and spend my hard-earned money on beer there before I buy a beer at a pub with a vaccine passport on the way like closer. And I, I was just like, oh, what a surprise. The guy who thinks drink driving is not dangerous <laughs> is not worried about COVID. Like, you absolute madman. Yeah, uh, my favorite is, uh, and this is they show that um, you, a, in Texas, a um, NRA membership card, uh, a, your, the government issued license that you permitted to carry a firearm is considered ID to vote. A university ID is not considered a valid ID to vote. <laughs> like, wait, wait, what, what, what are we trying to do here? That's, yeah. <laughs> and I, and I do, I, I, you know, I, I do get the idea that, um, you know, the, I, in, in, when my son, who's now an adult, but when he had to play, when he went to go play baseball, we had to bring records of his immunizations, all his shots. We had to have a birth certificate. I'm like, why? You can't believe yeah. that he's 11? No, yeah. I had to bring a birth certificate, you know, to play freaking little league baseball. Yeah. Heaven forbid he hits the ball a little bit too hard, Yes. Yes, exactly. So are, uh, are there some, talk to me about Rage Against the Machine and Blink-182 and other maybe artists. What are songs that you go back to routinely to either keep you motivated, give you faith, maybe when you're in a down mood, you know, you feel sorry for yourself. Talk to me about some of those songs. So I will say as, as good as Blink-182 were at the time, yes. I am lucky enough that my musical tastes have expanded to the point that you know if i'm putting blink 182 it will be a live album and it'll be purely nostalgic and almost almost like patting my oh you've moved on from this that well is- and you know i i graduated high school in 1977 so the yeah. height of the disco era you know so i would not I do not routinely bring out KC and the Sunshine Band's greatest hits. <laughs> However, if I hear yeah. randomly, I it is it I am I am in the TARDIS. I am back to 1977 and I am remembering, you know, the joy we got on Shake 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 Your Booty. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the lyrical genius that is. Yes. <laughs> Right, you know, yeah. play that funky music, white boy. You know, <laughs> I, I see, I see what you're getting at. Yeah, it is strange that I, I do think mm, a weird thing about, and this I've not thought about this before, and maybe I'm completely wrong, but I do think there's a weird thing about Spotify and the way that music consumption has changed, in that the big artists of my generation when I was a teenager haven't graduated to becoming, you know, the golden oldie station song, you know, the golden oldie stations still play the music of my parents' generation, not mine, which I find fascinating. Um, 
Well, yeah. hold that point because I want to go, but I remember Don Henley tells the story from the Eagles that was yeah. in the car and he heard that someone said, and now classic rock. And he went, <laughs> holy shit, we're going to become, that is a whole different, they have repackaged instead of just what's oldies. You know, yeah. like we used, like growing up to me, hearing songs from the 50s and the 60s, Elvis, or, you yeah. know, Paul Anka, or, you know, uh, you know, early uh, other, you know, other, you know, like Chuck Berry. And all of a sudden, it's now classic rock. And they've redone this. Um, and that now then multiple generations are listening to what you would have considered, as you said, your parents' music. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, they, they did happen to, to make it timeless in a really, really, I guess, interesting way, like, good on yes. them. Um, yeah, I think, so I think for me, Rage Against the Machine are still one that I will go back to. And believe it or not, it's not Killing in the Name. I think Killing in the Name is actually probably some of their weakest because it's just repetitive. It's great. Like, yeah. it's angry as hell but right. it's a bit repetitive. I, I really go back to Sleep Now in the Fire, Bulls on Parade, like these kind of uh, everything off kind of Battle of Los Angeles or Evil Empire. I think for me, what that those albums did and what they, that they always bring me back to is that there were all these ideas that I had floated around in isolation of each other. Like there was a little bit of uncomfortability with the, the way the work, the labor system worked. Although I, I, I would never have articulated that way. There's yeah. a bit of problems with racism. There's a bit of problems with like structural inequality. There were all these kind of satellite ideas that I didn't have language for, but they just felt wrong to me as yes. an early teenager. And what Rage Against the Machine did was they introduced me to two things. One is all of the things that I could then go and Google and research because somehow through their lyrics, they're exposing you to actually political frameworks that are quite um, well documented and you can kind of... And then the second actually, and the most important one of them is the idea that you can have this spirit of rebellion and this spirit of discontent and it doesn't have to be a defeatist thing. It doesn't have to be a sad thing. If anything, it can be a energetic and joyous thing. You can actually own that and you can do it in a way that is not, oh, doesn't this all just suck a bit? Oh God, it just, you know, it's just terrible. No, you can actually like really do something about it. You can have some energy in it. And I, I found that I think a super, super important thing and something that is always great. Like there is, Regardless of what your thing is, going back and remembering the way your thing made you feel when you first discovered it is is always a joy. Yeah, no, well said. I, I really like that idea. And um, I had a, I still have a very good friend. Her name is Sarah Hickman and she's now retired. But um, when she was very young, uh, her first album came out in 89 and someone wrote that, she had a little bit of a Joni Mitchell vibe, but instead of, oh, you broke my heart and I'm going to sit here and cry, Sarah's music was, oh, you broke my heart and that's okay. It'll get better and I'm going to move on, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. And and I do think that's 
you know, very interesting and, and see. Um, I, you know, I didn't ask you specifically, but as a Rage Against the Machine fan, were you kind of proud when he was touring with the East Street Band? Did that kind of make you feel, yeah. how did that make you feel? Dude, it was, it was genuinely awesome. And it was genuinely awesome, mainly for the reason that you said, you see him on stage and you see how much this means for him, how fun, how much fun he's having doing this. And it does two things. One, it's just nice to see people you've like loved for a long time really just still finding new ways. It, that's yeah. always cool. Um, and then secondly, it does really put into um, perspective the gravity of Bruce Springsteen as a performer, right? That somebody who I grew up and he, they were like the biggest band in the world to me. And then they're in the in the same level of fandom. It's not like the fandom changed at all. Right. Like you can see the adoration that I would have if I was on stage with them. You can see that in Tom's eyes when he's on stage with Bruce. It's kind of, it's really cool. I think it's really endearing to yeah. see that. Yeah. Um, so what have I, what should I have asked you that I haven't? Because this question. has been a great conversation. Yeah, I've really enjoyed it. And I don't think there is anything, you know, like I I I think I think it's really cool because I as much as at the top we were like, oh, it's gonna be a bit less Brucey, and it probably was considering like the, the normal deep dive you go on. Yeah. But also coming on the show, I was like, it did really make me realize how even though I was as I said, late to life in, in terms of enjoying Bruce Springsteen. And I've never spent, like I've, I've listened to most albums once or twice, but I've never yeah. really considered myself a fan. But it is crazy then going, actually, how much impact somebody who you did not think of yourself as a fan yeah. of has satellite had. It's really cool. Have you spent any time with the latest album, Letter to You? No. I And I would say purely because it's, it's, I guess it's like uh, one of those TV sh- Like I, I felt like treating it like an episodic TV show yeah. because I want to see what's come before to contextualize what happens next. So I, I tell you what, I've done this a couple of times, Anthony, is I've pulled 10 or 12 lesser known Springsteen songs and put that in a Spotify playlist. If you're interested, I can send you the link of that. You could listen to these dozen or so songs and then I'll have you come back on and we'll talk about them. How's that sound? That is perfect. Let's do exactly that. Okay. That sounds great. All right. Um, All right. I did give you some homework. Um, So uh, the song Thunder Road uh, Jay Armstrong is an honors English teacher uh, in the Philadelphia area. He just recently retired, but at the end of, he, he will take two days out of his class and they will break apart Thunder Road, looking at all the lyrics, look at the imagery. And at the end of the song, he asks the question, does Mary get in the car at the end of Thunder Road? Anthony, that's your question. I think so. Think so? Okay. I think so. Any explanation or just you're going to leave it at that? I'm going to leave it at that. Okay. I, I, I am always, you know, whenever there is a degree of lit, literary ambiguity. Yes. I'm always one for picking an answer and yes. then 
sticking to that. I, I think, um, I think <laughs> delving into the realms of philosophical nihilism, I, yeah. I, I, I find the idea of that uncertainty, whilst intellectually curious, what good does it hold? So if you yep. just pick an answer and then that, that's the answer because that's the way I want it to be and I'm going to stick with it. I, I love that. <laughs> you know, it's interesting. Um, I asked this question, Brian Koppelman, the guy who did Billions and he wrote Rounders and um, he does a podcast and he recently did a Ask Brian question. He said, email me questions. And so I emailed him the question and uh, his daughter ended up picking that email and asked him the question. And he said that um, he doesn't want to know the answer. He like he's exactly different to what you're saying. The ambiguity and the emotions of the song is enough for him and him not knowing is what makes the song so good for him. And I thought that was a really fascinating answer. Yeah. And, and I completely, I completely get that. And there, there is a time in my life, in fact, again, to, to be slightly hypocritical, there is a time in my life where I was the same. Um, Inception, you know, the, the spinning. Yes, top, exactly. Right. Does it, will it fall, won't it fall? We don't know, obviously. And in my head, I think, that question was what the whole movie was designed to give you. It, it, it's, it's Plato's cave in a, yeah. how do you ever know you know, right? Yeah, it is, it's Schrodinger's cat. The whole premise is it doesn't matter, right? Yeah. Um, and I don't know if you ended up watching, uh, pardon the pun, but H HBO did a Watchmen miniseries based on the comic book. And the series ended in a very, um, cliffhanger vague note and uh, you know and as the Damon Lindoff who wrote Lost and said all the answers are there I mean you know we've given you the answer of what happens next but thematically and creatively we want to leave it at this point and I I like that I like that a lot yeah yeah I do think I do think there is a degree to which that is cool I think, do you know what's interesting? I think yeah. at a different time in my life, yeah. I may have given a different answer. I think at the moment with the, so much uncertainty over such a long period of time, it's exhausting. And so when, when faced with ambiguity, my thing is like, I'll pick a thing and until it's proven to not work, let's just do that because there, there are so many degrees of uncertainty and anxiety so just pick, you know, yeah. because otherwise. Well, it's the, um, I, I want a happy answer. I, ha I want a happy ending. Um, yeah. I, you know, with all the crap that's going on, um, you know, I, I think it's interesting as we're recording this, um, you know, Prince Philip just died. And so you're in the middle of that. I imagine that, um, yeah. you know, and they're, you know, a few people on the right have been like, oh, and basically, you know, Megan killed him by doing this TV, you know, like he was fighting health and he saw his grandson and his, you know, granddaughter-in-law destroy the family on TV and that's what killed him. He was 99. <laughs> and that is, as far as conspiracy theories, that goes, that is so funny because I, with, with all due respect to a, a dude who 
is polarizing, but lived a long life of of yeah. of, of, of uh, structural importance. Yes, he has looked unhealthy and 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 it, 99 and looked 99 you know yes. some people like elizabeth i don't know how old she actually is but she looks young like she looks she does she does i mean she doesn't i mean like in fact they showed a clip of charles talking about his father and i'm like wow prince charles looks old which yes. is you know yes. while versus bruce we go back to right bruce is 71 and you see him and you're like every once in a while you go oh there's a little bit but yeah it is just crazy it's awesome yeah yeah it is yeah but so (laughs) with that the idea that um this guy who 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 was unfortunately old and ailing yes (laughs) somehow saw this tv interview and thought do you know what i'm gonna do i'm gonna wait a month and then i'll let it kill me (laughs) Exactly. That's great. All right, Anthony. Uh, if someone wants to reach you, what's the best way to do it? So um, I guess my Twitter is at Anthony Janot. I'm pretty responsive on that. Um, I've got a weekly podcast called High Proud Dribble. So um, you can check me out there as well. I think. What's the name of the, the podcast? We didn't even High Proud Dribble. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's uh, just me because going on stage is illegal at the moment every week yeah. i get one of my friends from comedy and we interview a different academic politician so it's oh that's the idea great. Of, yeah we just try and try and the ideas that people talk about and don't understand we're like okay well explain them to us idiots essentially oh, okay. oh that sounds yeah. great good well, all right well thank you my friend i will email you a list yes, we'll please. have you back on again this has been a joy i, I hope you've had as much fun as i have absolutely so nice talking to you jesse take care i'll oh. look forward to talking to you again all right so listeners you stay safe remember to wash your hands remember to social distance remember to wear a mask and let's all be good to each other because that's the way we're going to get through this thank you guys we'll talk to you soon goodbye one of the ways that i am able to podcast is the support of not only my listeners but my patrons. We do have a Patreon page that is available. And I want to thank Mary, Thomas, Terry Smith, Elizabeth Bronson, Dale Hosick, Andrew Goddard, Stephen Malio, Anna Lynn, Betsy Hodges, Steve Rogers, Holly McMillan, and Chris Bloom. Thank you guys so much for your financial support and pledge. You guys are my heroes. Thank you. Doing a podcast at times can be a one-way conversation, and I hate that. So please let me know what you like and don't like about the work I'm doing. You can reach the podcast via email at setlustingbruce at gmail.com. The show is on Twitter, at setlustingbruce, and my personal Twitter is at jessejacksondfw. We have a website, www.setlessingbruce.com. From there, you can find links to other Springsteen podcasts, as well as other music-themed podcasts. We have a page devoted to our own SLB All-Star Band. These are guests who have been on the podcast more than three times. There is a link to our store where you can purchase Set Lessing Bruce shirts, as well as a Mary Question t-shirt. There is a link to our Patreon page where you can sign up to help support the podcast financially. We have different levels and different rewards based on your support. 
If you don't have any extra cash, and right now who does, you can support the podcast by subscribing via your favorite podcast player and leaving us a review. The more reviews we have, the easier it is for people to find us. And please tell a friend about the podcast, especially if they love Bruce or music, because it will make a difference. You just heard the fun talking, hard rocking, music loving, album ranking, fan thinking, joy spreading, lyric reading, story sharing podcast that is the one, the only, that listing Bruce. Set Listing Bruce is part of the Southgate Media Podcast Group. The theme for Set Listing Bruce was written by David Rosen, used by permission. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.